0: Until we acknowledge our own weaknesses, how can we be true healers of those people around us? We need to be honest and aware of our own needs in order to I think be the best that we can be to the people that we see. We are mm-hmm. no we're no different. I think there's this assumption that GPs sit in a different space. From other people around us we don't we're still human we're still experiencing all of that as well and we need to be really honest about that
1: hi my name's dr rachel steen and i'm a gp registrar working in sheffield unfortunately despite our best efforts patients most in need don't get the best care this problem is present and very real in the uk I feel, with increasing challenges and changes in both our health and social care services, health inequality needs to be at the top of the agenda. Despite having had a keen interest in population health and preventative medicine throughout my training, I find tackling health inequalities often feels complex, with no obvious solutions. Throughout this podcast, I aim to simplify this. I'll be talking to some of the most experienced colleagues in the field, hoping to fuel interest, inspiration, and further discussion around this challenging topic. Hello, and welcome to Finding Fair Health podcast. On today's episode, I'm talking to the lovely Lucy Chinook, Lucy currently works in Leeds as a GP in inclusion, health and substance use. I got to know Lucy through some teaching she did for GPs working in deprived areas across Yorkshire and Humber and was blown away by the honest and practical approach Lucy has to helping vulnerable people and since then have been badgering her about being on the podcast. Lucy has a wealth of experience working with and supporting vulnerable and marginalised people, not just through her work as a GP, but also through commissioning, charity work and medical education too so Lucy welcome to Finding Fair Health podcast thank you it's lovely to have you here today um Lucy I couldn't wait to chat to you today because I feel like you're doing some absolutely amazing things for the people of Yorkshire and uh this so this podcast is about tackling health inequalities and I know this is something that is very dear to your heart as well mm-hmm. as mine and just tell me a little bit about your journey so far in this field
0: um I've got interested in inclusion health when I was at medical school and it will definitely have been rooted um, back through my teenage younger years as well. And I was at a point when I was trying to decide whether I'd continue with medicine, get to the end of my course or whether I was just going to do something altogether different. And I sat in with um, an amazing GP who was doing some dropping clinics in Leicester called Nigel Hewitt he was working as a in a suburban practice um, but recognized the need of the homeless people in Leicester there's no healthcare available so was doing some drop-in clinics in a centre sat in with him and thought Do you know what if I stay in medicine this is the sort of medicine I want to be involved in and it resonated with some work that I was doing um, in a homeless shelter at the time where he could see the prevalent need of of the homeless people there
1: hmm.
0: so that's what sort of kind of got me aware that I would be able to use my interest in sort of um, homelessness with my medical training and also just kind of thought actually there's a way I can stay in medicine and and use yeah develop that further yeah okay okay how has that helped you get to where you are now yeah that's an interesting question I've had quite a checkered journey I suppose I um, started a um, a training post in homeless health so I did an innovative post in um, GP training for six months in homeless medicine and then I thought actually I just have (laughs) I feel completely lost I have no idea how to support um, homeless people with their health needs it felt like there are so many more holistic needs that needed addressing as well as their health Um, obviously housing being one of them so I Decided to quit medicine um, and uh, worked for a homeless agency in Leeds for a while. Um, At the same time, pursuing an interest in public health. Um, So I did a public health master's um, with a special interest in looking at homeless services across the country. And at the time, not really sure why I was doing both those things, Um, and then eventually ended up back in general practice because I realised working as a volunteer for this homeless agency that um, there was potentially so much more that I could address in terms of the health needs by going back into general practice. Um, so did that and really value the experience that kind of working as a volunteer gave me.
1: Um, mm.
0: During that time when you
1: were doing your public health masters and then volunteering, you said you didn't really quite know why you were
0: doing it. Yeah, I think I was probably, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go back into medicine at the mm-hmm. time I left because I just I quite honestly had enough of it and didn't feel that we were meeting people's needs. Um, and also I thought, well, I'll, I'll go and see what's out there, what is out there in terms of provision for um homeless people and someone at the practice one of the GPs there had um put me in touch with a homeless with the public health masters and suggested that an interest I could pursue and then see where it led me when I was working for the homeless the uh, homeless agency and we were going around and seeing all these men on the streets we realized there was an absolute dearth of women around as well um so at the time um pursued that a little bit further and um we ended up with a friend. Couple of friends ended up setting up a charity for vulnerable women, um, which is still actually going um, to mm. this day. Is that, that's the Joanna that's project? The jo- project. Um, so actually, I now work for the um, as a GP and uh, do two hours down at the Joanna Project as a GP for the women there. So it's kind of come oh, back and forth. Fantastic.
1: Time.
0: Do you think that
1: our medical system as GPs is set up to support our? patients who are homeless
0: on their holistic needs I I think at the time I felt no Mm. which and and felt quite despondent at that and I also um, just didn't feel like I had the capacity to know where to start Um, I feel like going back into it now with perhaps a a little bit more um, experience of not only in medicine but also of working with vulnerable groups outside of medicine I kind of come back into it and think no we're not we aren't set up from the top-down system to deliver care, but actually there's a lot of people working within the homeless health system who want to deliver better holistic care. So we find creative and innovative ways of doing that. And um, Bevan Healthcare is a good example of that because they find ways, and I work for Bevan Healthcare, find ways to just to look completely outside the box to um, develop aspects of care which you wouldn't necessarily see as mainstream medical care, but which... Whole, wholly support the kind of fundamental health needs of the person so for example within our practice we'll have um, someone who comes in and can support them with their um, welfare needs they can go upstairs to the drop-in centre upstairs and get their housing needs met and their fundamental um, breakfast and food and uh, needs met and clothing needs met so although we don't offer that particularly ourselves we've got people who can come in and do that or people who are close by who can do that we also have a street medicine service where we take a service out to those people who aren't even accessing our service and we're pretty accessible um, and find ways to draw them in Um, but do that in a complete holistic way so by befriending by building trust so I think we find ways to be creative and innovative but all this stuff is done on a shoestring from the um, system itself
1: yeah. Okay.
0: And often money comes in from other external charitable agencies too to do that.
1: Yeah. Okay. And it sounds like there's not a one one size fits all model really. Yeah. It's
0: I think you have to be creative and dynamic. I mean, there's a lot of talk currently about sort of co-production. So looking at what you're um, speaking to the patients and finding out what they need, what their wants are. Um, we try and do been trying to do a little bit of this down at Joanna projects with the women um, and it's quite fascinating when you when you start talking in that way okay so what 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 are what are your needs what do you think we we need to be doing together to build a, a, a better sort of health health provision for you and the people are, well oh I well I, I don't know I don't know what I need oh well I need my legs doing it's like okay so it's kind of starting to develop a different kind of conversation where people are involved and finding ways to kind of think actually I can be a bit empowered to tell you what I need and then see if we can find a way to make that happen
1: yeah yeah Um, and that's really empowering for Individuals as well,
0: isn't yeah. it? Which is a fundamental point of trauma-informed care. So when you think yeah. about trauma-informed care, yeah. the first port of call is about making people feel safe. So their physical, yeah.
1: emotional. Just start from the beginning, Lucy. First, and tell us what trauma-informed care yeah. is, and then
0: tell us what you're about to tell us. So, um I think sometimes it can be quite a difficult entity to define. Um, mm. For me, it's about seeing um, the patient in front of me um, with a lens that understands what has gone on to them in the past um, and recognises the impact that that can have on what they're presenting with when I see them. And ensuring, therefore, that the approach that I take is one that um, provides them with enough emotional, physical safety that they are able to feel comfortable to disclose or not even to disclose because I think it's important that we don't necessarily make people disclose what's going on but that they feel comfortable enough to trust to put trust in me and to be able to discuss their health needs that they've got mm-hmm. um, if we see people with that lens then we will view them differently than if we if they come in to see us and we see say they're injecting behaviour result of them making choices to do that I think we need to view them with the lens that okay you're This is the situation that you're presenting to me in. You've injected into your groin, you've got X, Y, you've got this ulcer, and you've got this mental health issue. Okay, but what's gone on before that has precipitated all of this in your life? You know, let me think wider than just that you've come in there and you've done this to yourself, and you know, you're just making bad choices. So it's about looking at people with just a completely different lens. And I think we also have to be careful that when we do see people, I just mentioned briefly there, that actually sometimes it's important that we don't truck back through people's histories and make them tell their stories again because there is the potential to re-traumatise people if we think, OK, I'm seeing you present here with this issue, which potentially is a result of some previous trauma. Well, just get that and sit with it and see that person in the here and now doing what you can to build that trust Um And that safe space with them. Um, Sometimes if you start delving back and asking explicit questions about whatever they might have had to deal with in the past, you can, what's called, re-traumatise them, bring that Mm. all back. So it's being mindful that we um, have an understanding of where they've potentially come from, that we um, don't draw that into the mix until they feel ready and able to do so, if they choose to do so. But that we deal with the here and now through that lens,
1: because mm. um, that's quite a different lens to the um, I don't know the clinicians always talk about the heart sink patient. You know, mm. that's on the list. And you see their name mm-hmm. four or five down, and it's right in the middle of your surgery, and you think, oh, oh, I don't know, Mrs. Mrs. Bloggs is here again today. Mm. And do you
0: still do you still get heart sink patients? Do you know? I was thinking about that the other day. I I find all my patients quite fascinating. Mm. So even the ones that have come in with certain behaviors that can sometimes be quite challenging so particularly ones that I know are going to want to negotiate some kind of probably a prescription of pregabalin say or um, an opioids and uh I know this might sound slightly odd, but I see that as a bit of a, a challenge to kind of go, well, where is he coming from? Why mm. Why is he doing that? Or maybe he's just doing that because that's what he needs in the here and now. So we just have a really honest and blunt discussion of, of how this isn't feasible. Whereas I think previously I might have gone, oh, my God, he's coming in again. Mm. I just can't cope with that. Um,
1: I that think... was mind blowing for me, actually, when I sat back and thought about it from that point of view that actually... Mm. The pa- if you think about it that actually the more challenging patient isn't necessarily a heart sink it's actually probably the most interesting patient mm. of
0: your day and it can be quite rewarding mm. I can think of one patient in particular who was um, is possibly slightly older than others in our practice which is a complete anomaly because I work in a homeless practice so obviously our, our patients tend to be till around sort of their mid to late 40s and we have a few in their 50s a couple in there uh, who are older than that actually he was quite particularly demanding. And actually, we don't have a lot of, in terms of sort of uh, wanting certain prescriptions and having an idea of kind of what healthcare he wanted. Now, often we'll get patients who are demanding around prescription drugs and that sort of thing, but having a patient who comes in quite demanding about other aspects of their, their healthcare, it's quite unusual. Um, and also just particularly critical of our practice and the situation that we are in, um... And he'd got a bit of a reputation of being quite sort of angry and abusive at reception. And he, I just, I actually found it quite um, a challenge uh, when I saw his name down there and I thought, oh dear. And he came and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to be honest, uh, completely honest with you and just kind of front it out that you know actually you know you're coming in and 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 actually it's felt like your behavior is being a bit of a challenge to reception and you know kind of and he he was he sort of took a step back and he was actually okay and he completely engaged on that level was completely on his back and we actually had quite a, a good banter about it um so that's yeah, great. I think it I think sometimes we need to challenge ourselves to take a different approach and not be afraid to be completely honest. And so that works in every scenario. But with some people, it, it might do break things down. I think often we put up such barriers and we can make it a bit of a them and us situation about like he's coming in to see me and I've got to do X, Y and Z. Or I've got to kind of deliver this or I don't want to deliver this. Or actually, if you just break all that out, take all that out of the equation and say, well, Okay, so you're coming in, but you know that this is a situation. You know what? You know I'm going to be completely honest, and this is where we're at. So let's work it out. <laughs> and that yeah. may not be completely um, the way of the traditional GP model, but I find that works far better for me.
1: Yeah. Mm. And in order to have that conversation, had you built up some trust over time, and did you know? That, did you know him, or was that the first
0: time you met him? That was the first time I oh, met really? him. Oh,
1: really? Oh, wow. So yeah, that's amazing.
0: Yeah um i can't say that we'd always have a yeah a similar response with every patient and i think that's the that's the that's the joy of the practice is that you judge the patient and you judge the situation Mm -hmm. and you um your your response will reflect Mm. um that judgment call i guess yeah
1: yeah so the, the thing i'm also interested in is um there's such a sort of mainstream media stance on I don't know obesity addiction. It's just I'll just tell people to stop or tell people to lose weight and um, that really frustrates me because uh-huh. as we've talked about previously in I don't know prostitution for example, there's high levels of trauma in uh-huh. addiction. We know uh-huh. that there's high levels of trauma from um, in people's past and I I think the thing I find interesting. Is we assume that people are making choices to mm. be obese or mm. choices to, to food, yeah. um, I don't know, to use drugs, but actually mm. there's you can go further back mm. and um, this isn't a choice. And I um, think
0: what you're starting to drive at is about adverse childhood events, mm. and this is a this is something which um, has really kind of hit the headlines, I suppose, mm. more recently yeah. um, about the fact that if people have had high incidence of adverse events in their um, younger years then they are more likely to develop um, long-term conditions so for example um, we should probably explain what adverse childhood events mm. are adverse childhood events are things such as experiencing um, abuse or violence in the home as a child experiencing a divorce or bereavement experiencing um, domestic abuse going on in the house ex- living with an alcoholic um, or a, a substance user in the house. Experiencing living in a household where there's uh, mental health issues, and there are numerous, there's five other key ones as well. And if you have in your past experience four or more of these adverse childhood events, then you are three times more likely, I think it is, to develop cardiovascular disease, to have um, type 2 diabetes, and you have an increased risk of um, susceptibility to addiction. Um, And also, interestingly. There was a study done, I think, that demonstrated... I think someone was doing an obesity clinic in America. Um, it was on a film called Resilience I watched uh, recently. And th- he said that 55% of his obese patients had experienced some form of trauma in the past. And there's uh, a lot of neuroscience that backs this up. And there is some scientific backing for this that's um, uh, related to the hormone ghrelin, and, um, which... Um, is overproduced when when people mm. are younger, mm. so it's it's fascinating that actually mm. some of this stuff. Not saying everybody; it doesn't always have a root in that. So we can't view everybody with that lens. No, um, but, but it's important to recognise that some of these things that people are presenting with may actually be as a result of the way that their body has formed, their brain has formed, their hormones are formed when they were in their younger years.
1: Yeah, yeah. as we're talking about health inequality. Um, all of this links back to poverty.
0: Mm, absolutely. Um,
1: and I think that fundamentally is um, the thing that for me, I, I feel is so unfair about adverse childhood experiences. Mm, this mm. links back to someone who's born into this, born into a situation and they've not really had the choice. Mm. Um, so, going back to what we were talking about in mm. terms of addiction, mm. there isn't that mm. choice. Mm. But so often, um, even as clinician, clinicians, I think we can be guilty of thinking that patients have the choice. Mm. Um, How much do you think when we sort of talk about trauma-informed care and how much we talk about sort of managing, um, I don't know, addiction and things like that, how much do you think that um, there is a role for that? I know we talk about empowering patients, but how much do you think there is a role for patient responsibility?
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I find this quite a fascinating Concept because and um, I like and I find it quite a, an interesting road to walk because when you see someone in front of you you can go back to that right okay so you had this trauma when you were younger that potentially affected how you're you know bringing the neuroscience into your amygdala formed and it and it may have affected how your dopamine receptors mm. respond to things so therefore you may be be susceptible to um, uh using opiates and and because your dopamine response your dopamine receptors aren't working properly you may need to get you may you may um sort of resort to addiction to get the same level of Mm -hmm. dopamine response as other people do who don't need to do that. Um, Or there may be other reasons why you've you've moved into addiction because of what you're exposed to in your younger years. so therefore, there may be an element of, okay, your neuroanatomy is supporting the development of this, so therefore, how much do we say, oh, yeah, you know, you, you can't, you do not not making any choice in this, this is all, um, you know, it's all down to your neuroanatomy and therefore, mm. um, don't worry, you carry on doing what you're doing because you're not responsible for it all anyway. Um I think I think you need to be in a position where you um, can feel empowered. Mm. So, although to some extent you might be in a situation you're in, you know, so for example, um, some of the women that I um, see, they may well be using substances because of um, the awful trauma that they've experienced, um, that has made them more susceptible. From not only a neuroscience perspective, mm. but also from that continuing part of being um living in poverty and and living in a in an area yeah. where it's just life around them and um not having the um support around them the community support the family support the relational support in order to, yeah. to move out of the addiction um and we say well it, you know how much of that is their responsibility to pull out of well the problem is we fail people on so many levels we fail people on a systems level as well as on a, a personal um, relational level and and in order for people to be able to take some element of responsibility you need to ensure that the systems are set up in order for people to be empowered to do so mm. um because what what we see is 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 austerity coming down as we see universal credit where people are, are living on money which is basically peanuts um people are living in poverty how can they take responsibility for um, their circumstances and their addiction where the system is almost kind of set up to crush us? You know, mm-hmm. the housing scenario isn't set up for people to be able to um, live in good housing in good areas where they're away from all of the substance misuse around them. You know, we we, we aren't supportive enough as a system in order for people to be in a place where they can make different choices. I don't really like that idea. I guess it can become, well, someone needs to take, they need to take responsibility and get themselves out of it. Well, actually, um, you can't take responsibility for getting yourself out of it unless there are opportunities to move out of it. And you need to be empowered, I suppose, to be able to make those choices. And mm. a part of empowerment is having the right systems in place, but also the right relationships in place, the right community in place.
1: Mm. I'm um, pleased you mentioned community and relationships as well there, because a lot of this also is about love. Mm. and feeling loved Mm.
0: is it Mm. well it's interesting you say that because they when they talk about childhood uh, adverse events Mm. and the effects of those on the developing brain actually interestingly one of the countering effects is that of the love hormone oxytocin that can have Mm. a countering effect on these other um the raging effects of um trauma and other adverse events in your life when i was um, a registrar at the um, homeless practice. There was a psychiatrist who worked there that said to me, and this was just before I left, I said, "You know what, Lucy? I've worked for years in this place, and what I've realised is the only thing that helps people to move out of their situation that they're in is love." I thought that was really fascinating because he was such, you know, he he was a psychiatrist who who was who who worked in a very sort of mainstream psychiatric way, but yet was coming out with this sort of faffy love theme and i was like mm. oh, wow that's really it's really fascinating but it's true that actually it's about that love that connection between people platonic love or romantic love whichever whichever one you choose mm-hmm. it's about that that connection between people um that actually makes the difference yeah that that love that is um prevalent in a psychologically informed environment say so where i go and do my dropping in clinic The place place that um, the women go to, the charity that runs that, it's just full of love and warmth and acceptance. It's just pervasive. When people go there, they feel truly loved and warm and accepted. And they can just be, they can just let everything hang out. So when I go in there to do my clinic to these women, that I'm already kind of jumping on the back of that trust that's already there with their support workers and in that place. It feels like that environment is set up um, for me to to be able to come into at a particular level and, and the the of the, the trust is there already. Um, 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 I
1: was reading on your Joanna Project website that um, I think there's a quote there and I'm I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly right here right now. But it was saying that um, we know that you, I think it was talking about a lady who had relapsed on her mm -hmm, addiction mm -hmm. and she, um, it said, we know that you have had hard times and you may not you might still be using and mm. that's fine but we'll always be here for you mm. um and we will be the ones who will be here for you always through mm. all of that mm. and i just thought that was lovely
0: yeah and uh, you know what when we when we so go back to the adverse chartered events yeah. again one of the um profound things that can support children to develop resilience to these adverse events that they're going through. Mm. So basically, basically, it's not a fait accompli. You're going through these adverse events as a child that you will definitely grow up and face addiction, face um, uh, increased risk of mental health or suicide. It's not a fate complete. There are ways to counteract these adverse childhood events. And one of them is to have sustained, meaningful and trusting relationships yeah. in your life. And if you have that sustained relationship, then that can support you to a point where these will not have such a great impact on your life as you are when you're older. Yeah. So taking that a leap forward to women who have had such events and possibly haven't had that kind of stability of trust and relationship throughout those adverse events, that's coming into play at that point in their lives. And it's vastly important in terms of healing and recovery. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important as practitioners that we recognise all of that. We recognise those needs and that we ensure that our um, health care is brought to people in that context. Because every everywhere along the line, and I see it with the women that know I see in my clinic, barriers are put up against them being able to access care and access support. Um because all of these fundamental needs and requirements aren't recognised. Um, a third of the women I see are actually registered with a mainstream GP, but because they have to jump through these hurdles in order to access the healthcare needs of the GP and there's not their trust there, they won't go to them. Mm. And that starts at, you know, you've got to ring at 8 o'clock in the morning to get your appointment. Well, I'm not up at 8 cause I'm in Holbrook. You know, I'm in the, in the red light district all night. Yeah,
1: and now, so I'm, the system just isn't set so, up. The system isn't set no. up. No.
0: Yeah,
1: um, I diversify. No, no, no. Well, that's interesting. And actually, it's kind of what I want to talk about, really, is that how can how can we as health professionals, not just GPs, um, approach um, these patients? We've talked a little bit about developing trust, safe spaces, allowing time to speak, um, not necessarily delving into the past when mm. um, at every consultation because... People don't want to be re-traumatised. So how how could we set up the system better um, to help these patients?
0: Well, and also, and how people. do we how do we do that in the context of a mainstream general practice? Mm. It's all very well me, me talking here about giving people time and taking the service to people, to, to the women where they're at. And actually, there is a need for that. So to the most vulnerable people, I think it's really important mm. that we make healthcare accessible and we take it to them. Um, And I think that we need to ensure that the system is set up in a way that we can do that. Otherwise, we're putting huge barriers up to care. But we also need to be able to ensure that mainstream general practice is aware of the needs of, of women and that there is some leeway in terms of how those most vulnerable within our patient population can access appointments you know, we can't give them twenty-minute appointments in mainstream general practice. It's not feasible. It's got to be a ten-minute appointment. Um, we we haven't got all the time in the world to chat to people in that ten-minute appointment. It will be building up trust over a period of time. But what we can do is, when the women ring up, that we uh, to the reception, that the people on reception go, oh, you know, it's okay. Right, you don't need to. Um, you can have this appointment here. That's fine. We, you know, we've got some that are embargoed for. Um, the the most vulnerable in our practice. You can have this appointment in the afternoon. It doesn't matter if you're ringing up at two o'clock. We find ways to break down some of those barriers. Oh yes, of course you can register at our practice. You don't need to have this form of ID. You don't need to have a fixed address. It doesn't matter if you're living in a crack den. It's okay. Yeah. Um So there's there's fundamental things and shifts we can make in our mainstream general practices in order to accommodate the needs of those most vulnerable. Um, but acknowledging too that people that Busy practices will we'll still have to function within all of that and have a huge practice population that going to have to manage within all of that. But the ask is minimal. It's, you know, accepting patients into your practice without ID, but also making appointments accessible once you do that. Mm-hmm. And I think more of the women that I see would access their mainstream GP if they were able to get past that first hurdle, interestingly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so it's even sort of barriers before they've even walked in the door. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, yeah, so that's the place to start, and then once once you have the patient in front of you, how much so. A, a lot of um, a lot of the care um, for a homeless patient or um a, an addict or um, someone working in prostitution mm. I wonder whether how I, I know that a lot of it is holistic mm. um mm. and um, there's a lot of social issues mm. and how much is our role as the Gp um solving those and supporting on that basis
0: okay so my fundamental um feeling on this is about the fact that we are we are we're not just practitioners we're advocates for the patient okay so um and I know that when I say this to people, we haven't got all the time in the world. We can't sit there in our practice and do X, Y and Z. Well, no, we can't. And we're very fortunate in that um, in a lot of practices and leads, we have social prescribers and we can signpost our patients to the social prescribers who can do a lot of this work with people who, and who will know the community based assets uh, that they can um, take patients and direct patients to. Um, and I think it's it's important that we use those assets around us and that we're able to signpost um, patients accordingly. But in order to do, if we don't have a social prescriber within our practice, we need to be aware of the things within our local community that we can um, signpost our patients to and the, and the places that we can act as advocates to as well. Um, so... And I guess, you know, GPs will say, well, I can't act as an advocate for this patient. I've got 10 minutes with them. I haven't got time to ring X, Y and Z and to do X, Y and Z. Well, if that's the case, we find different ways to act as an advocate. We um, we we promote care navigators within our practices. Um, we use our advocacy role in a, in a different way um, to ensure that we can provide services within our practices that can provide um, and, and cater for other needs of our patients that will then support their fundamental health needs.
1: Yeah I, I completely agree with that that we are advocates for our patients and I think the minute we stop thinking of ourselves as advocates mm. for our patients we almost close off a huge amount of, of possibility of ways we can support our patients and it almost mm. goes against the fundamentals of General practice
0: for me, mm. and I, I think the the argument that I get back to is things is we, we are incredibly busy. We have a mm. huge practice list. Um, what I find fascinating is that we see GPs who are innovators and creators who work in them in the busiest deprived practices, who will find ways to act as advocates to their patients, to co-create solutions with their patients, and to work in a completely different way, mm. which actually then reduces the drive for um appointments within their services. So actually by thinking a little bit laterally, thinking outside of the box and finding more holistic solutions for the patients within your practice, that will actually reduce the demand on your regular appointments. But it's having the capacity to be able to think outside the box and look at ways that you can co-create services with your patient population mm. and to look at it differently.
1: So you're saying that those practices are having to be more innovative mm. um, and therefore thinking outside the box and having to be more creative.
0: Yeah, in order to make in order to actually make it work and to bring more um doctors into practices. Um, I know a GP in a whole whose um practice has suddenly lost all of their kind of all of their GPs, frankly. They've 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 gone to a point of retirement. And and it could be a disastrous situation and it is a very deprived area, but actually they're thinking, hang on. How can we work this situation more creatively to develop a whole new model of care where we are bringing in, you know, loads of different healthcare professionals to make our job easier. But not only make our job easier, but also to support the varied needs of our local population. Um, you know, they're bringing in OTs, mental health, social workers, looking at all, looking just looking at it completely differently. And that's quite transformative. So it's terrifying and there are less GPs around, but I think it does give us an opportunity to create perhaps a different way of addressing general practice, which I think is really quite exciting.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. And if we do that with our patients, if we have an element of co-production with that and we bring in the experts who are asking for the healthcare too, what could we create?
1: So the future's positive, Lucy? (laughs) Uh,
0: Within the current political system, I'm not sure how positive, um, but we won't uh, go go there. Um, I think I find it very hard to be positive in the current context of austerity, if I'm really honest. However, I'm pragmatic also, and I am aware that we just have to work within the current constraints of the system. So I'm not a, a kind of a flippant optimist by any stretch of the imagination. I'm actually quite a cynical pragmatist, but... Um, But I I can see room for opportunity within the situation, the circumstances that we are in. And I think we have to find ways within our circumstances to create what we can and to do what good we can and to find different ways of doing things. Um, And I think that, you know, the, the, the new environment we're moving into with primary care networks and looking at our population health, I think we... There was a potential, yes, for this to drive inequalities further. And I think there was a fear around that. But I think there's also the potential to do some real good and to co-create some really good and innovative solutions. And I think that we need to find ways to do that. Mm
1: -hmm. I could talk to you for hours and I know we're a bit limited on time. So um, I would like to hear a little bit about some of the stuff you're doing as an, an advocate for the patients you're seeing on top of your work as a GP. Okay. Um,
0: So um, I work as clinical leader for vulnerable groups in Hull, and we have been um, working for a while on developing a hospital discharge pathway, um, which is essentially a pathway supporting a homeless person or homeless people through hospital um, and then on discharge out into the community. So that was recently agreed by the commissioning board and it's currently going out for procurement. And we've also, quite excitingly, um, secured some money to from the local government to um, develop some primary health care around some local kind of assessment beds for homeless people within the city. But yeah, that's taken quite a long time to come into mm. fruition, probably about four years. But yeah. it's very exciting times.
1: Yeah, and so that's with an aim to sort of support homeless people, potentially at the point where they're well, they're vulnerable already, but at the most vulnerable, yeah. and therefore making a more sustainable plan for them. Absolutely. So, well,
0: a short term and then potentially a long term plan for housing and things like that. Absolutely. Well, we know we know that homeless people will use A and E eight times more than any other population, basically because they um, only use A and E when they are desperately ill or or over or having an overdose, etc. But actually. Um, if they are severely enough that they'll be admitted to hospital, the likelihood of them staying in hospital is quite minimal because there's so many barriers there. Um, people within a hospital setting won't necessarily be set up to support that homeless person. They won't necessarily recognise the um, how to support the addiction in order for them to be able to stay within hospital and, and gain treatment. There'll be massive trust issues against institutions because you know an often the experience that a homeless person would have had of an institution could be uh, incarceration. Um, or they've been in the hospital before and just had a, a, an awful experience or they might have had friends die in hospital and uh, they might have had previous events in childhood where family members have been brought into hospital and not come out. So all of these barriers to kind of staying in and experiencing care. They may need to dive off the ward to use drugs until they get to a point of stability with substitute medication. So the idea is that you've got um, a wraparound healthcare team that can kind of act as advocates for the patient in hospital. So say to the um, medical team, well, this is the reason why they're going through this and this is what we can do to support them. They can act as an advocate to the patient from the hospital team side saying to the patient well this is why the hospital team need to do what they're doing and this is the the treatment that needs to be given Um, provide them with um, clean clothes even um, support them with benefits while they're in hospital and look at the housing situation because many will be you know homeless is a generic term referring to people in temporary accommodation who are sofa surfing many may be sleeping on the streets so they can support them with all of that whilst in hospital and hopefully their exit from hospital with the cohesive support of this wraparound team will be completely different experience to if they've been treated in hospital um, without acknowledgement being given to all these wider needs.
1: Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Oh, well, um, masses of good luck with that service, because it sounds amazing.
0: <laughs> Thank you. And ideally, <laughs> okay. we will then tie it into this other service of sort of addressing primary health care needs, and... Um, prior to going into hospital and on discharge. So hopefully we can tie the two things two together. Two.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. more of a sort of prevention strategy, really. Yes, yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: Um, great. Um, I want to ask you, because you are obviously passionate in this area and you, we can tell by how enthused you are to talk about this topic um, and whenever I've spoken to you about this, where, where does this all come from in you?
0: Um, I think I... From, for a number of reasons, from sort of a young age, I I was made acutely aware of the injustices within our society and the horrific things that can happen to people. Um, and I I had some pretty awful things happen to um, a very close friend of mine when I was um, very young. And I think that that really drove home to me that this kind of society I live in is is not as pleasant as it could be Um, and that really stuck with me throughout my younger years and yeah that that I think that has really formulated the approach of the rest of my life I've always been quite um, passionate about injustice and the need for justice and the need to shout about the harm that can be done to vulnerable people Mm. who aren't able to speak up Mm. for themselves my friend wasn't listened to by lots of people. We weren't listened to about what was going on. And I think experiencing that at, at the young age of um, 11, 12 years old, I think you it 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 sort of sets in, in stone a, a sense of, well, this is pretty pervasive and it's something that I I want to keep talking about. Mm. So, yeah, from pretty early on, I guess.
1: Yeah, amazing. And um, does that drive you on a day-to-day basis still do you think
0: um not consciously but if I'm and it's only when I'm asked the question actually as to where where did all that come from that I kind of reflect back and it's very evident to me that that's where it originated from but um yeah that sense of sense of justice I suppose does drive me Mm -hmm. call it an obsession if you will
1: (laughs) (laughs) and um, as we've talked about as um clinicians seeing a patients who have gone through all sorts of trauma and having had awful, awful things happen in their lives. Mm. Um, that takes its toll on well, us as clinicians, you as a clinician, you as a person. Mm. How do you manage that? Uh,
0: well, I think uh, in the past, it has affected me quite, quite severely to the point where I've had to take time off work. Um, and uh, I think that I didn't always find ways to cope with it particularly well. Um, I think now I I went say I'm used to hearing story, the stories and they do still have affect me. However, I'm better at leaving it behind. I'm better at finding things I can do that take me completely outside of myself. Um, I love gardening. I've got an allotment that I um that is really therapeutic. I like to get out in the countryside and I've recently taken up roller skating, which I'm appalling oh, at brilliant. a bit it does make me laugh. That was <laughs>
1: brilliant. Roller skating or roller blading? Roller
0: skating. Roller skating.
1: Oh, yeah. Amazing,
0: yeah. So I've
1: roller skated since I was
0: about eight. Well, no, I think it was a complete (laughs) hug. I think it was a complete hug back to my younger years. And it, I think sometimes you just need to do things that just completely remove yourself from where you are and give you the ability to laugh at yourself again. Yeah. And and I think I I asked this question when I was off ill, and I spoke to a, a GP. Who has been in this work for years and years in fact the same one that I sat in with 20 years ago as a medical student and I said to him you know, how does everyone else manage this how does everyone else manage to not go off ill like this for six weeks and, um, and he said do you know what they don't he said they either get a raging alcohol habit they um, shower their family or they have lots of other issues that are just buried under the carpet we just don't talk about it enough so I think it's really important to me that we do acknowledge the impact this can have. We do find ways to support ourselves and each other in this and I think that can be done by talking to other GPs in the system. If I'm completely honest, I think I avoided GPs for years because I thought, well I don't do I have much in common common with you, <laughs> you know. Um I didn't really see myself as a proper GP. Um, And it's only been more recently that I've connected with other people who are working in a system and feel as passionately as I do about it. And I think that does make a difference. I think it's important not to be isolated in what we do. And um, there will always be points of connection. I think it's important that we do that not only in our home lives, but also in our working lives as well.
1: Mm -hmm. I love how... um... Um, I've spoken to you about this before, but I, I love how open and honest you are about the challenges you have faced in general practice. Because um, I definitely see people working at the deep end or who are working with patients who have had awful things happen to them and mm. seeing it impact. And as a trainee, I see that impact and I see um, GPs further on in their career as Potential role models, and if you see people struggling, it's not hugely inspiring, Mm. if I'm honest. And Mm. actually, I find it massively inspiring to know that it can be tough, but it's okay. Mm. And actually, the honesty there is so amazing. Um
0: I really values actually having this discussion with this uh with this GP who said, Well, this is you know, this is actually how it is. Yeah. I thought, well, we need more of us to do this. We need more of us to be those wounded healers, as Henry New spoke about. We need more of us to stand up there and said, Yeah, okay, you know, this happened to me. Yeah, I um I had depression, I think I was off with depression for six weeks. You know, that happened. Um and this was the reasons why I think it took its toll. This is what I'm put, trying to put in place now to make sure that doesn't happen again. And it's never, it's always an accumulation of things. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm going to keep plugging away, making sure that I keep these things in place so that it doesn't happen again. Mm. And fortunately, so far it hasn't. But we're all susceptible. And until we acknowledge our own weaknesses, how can we be true? healers of those people around us we need to be honest and aware of our own needs in order to I think be the best that we can be to the people that we see we mm. are no we're no different I think there's this an assumption that GPs sit in a different space from other people around us we don't we're still human we're still experiencing all of that as well and we need to be really honest about that
1: mm. Oh I, I mean, love not that immune. Lucy. <laughs> I love that, Lucy. Thank you. Um well I know your role is um mass well you we talked about your um you telling us your experiences and I know you've got a big role in education as well and um a lot of of this podcast is about um uh is about Education and is about um sharing our experiences and uh learning. And I wondered whether you would be able to um I always always ask one book um or educational resources that you think would be useful for um health professionals starting on their career who are interested in this sort of thing. What would you recommend?
0: so look, I can't just give you one book I'm afraid that's fine I'm going ha- to I'm one of those people who has about 10 books by the side of the bed yeah and they all pile up and they tend to fall on me when I go to sleep yeah and I'll I start. do and please someone else does that as well <laughs> and, right, and I will be reading uh, three books at once and four books at once and never quite finish any of them um, so I would like to recommend that people go on the Untold Stories whole website um it's an untoldstory-hull dot com and read the PDF book of the women in Hull, some vulnerable women in Hull who have opened up and told their story in the most incredible way in stories, in pictures, in prose. Um, you'll be blown away. And I for me that kind of p- that that voice, that narrative, that story is so fundamental to what we do and we need to hear more of these stories and hear more of these voices to understand the needs of people around us um, so for me that is far more important than any pontificating author so that's my number one. Second, I love pontificating brilliant authors as well so I would um, hugely recommend Gabriel Maté's In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts um, and also I love Johan Hari's um, Lost Connections which is just about connecting the fact that um, we need to ensure that people have point of connections in their community and their life for actually true healing to happen. Um, And actually, it's often lost connections that lead us to a point of despair and depression. And it's so true. Um, Mm. I love those two books.
1: Well, thank you, Lucy. And finally, I always ask this question to finish, um, and I wish there was a... um, a very clear solution but i i want to ask you if a genie appeared to you and you could grant one wish of tackling all of this this big problem we've got that we both think about on a day-to-day basis what would that one wish be what would you do how political can i be you can do whatever you like can i get rid of the government you can you can yeah (laughs) Yeah, um, and on that note, um, on a looming Theresa May departure, um, I will end there.
0: Um, thank you very
1: much. Yeah, thank you, Lucy. It's been lovely speaking to you today, and I wish we could talk for longer. Thank um, you. Take care. Thank you all for listening. You will be able to find further episodes on the Fair Health website. If you haven't been on there already, please do check this out at www.fairhealth.org.uk It is a fantastic educational resource. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us. If you have ideas, would like to talk to us or even if you have a suggestion of someone we could interview for an episode please do get in touch via Twitter at FairHealth or at RMSteam It would be great to hear from you. Really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding fair health.